Some of you might already know this, but a little bit about me is that I love stories. I love movies. I like TV shows. I like watching documentaries. But I also like to read stories. I like to read biographies, read fictional novels, or read historical fiction. And there are many reasons why I like stories, but one is because of the way they draw you in. That good stories, they don't only have themes, they not only teach, but they pull you into the story to experience it firsthand. That an, you move from a passive reader or viewer to an active participant. That stories give you a chance to kind of try on your beliefs, to see how you feel, your gut reaction to, to whether something is right or wrong, and to consider how you might have responded. So the nature of stories is that they, they invite us to be involved. Let me give a couple of examples. If you've been reading with us through the Lent reading guide, we've been going through Exodus. And even if you haven't, you probably know the Exodus story. But after the Israelites are miraculously delivered by God from slavery, it's only a couple chapters later that they start complaining and grumbling, and they ask to go back to slavery. Now, as a reader, it actually draws you in in a couple of ways. First, you wish you could be there and just say, stop it, that's foolish. But also because you see your own story in that story. That you feel it and you're reminded, yeah, I grumble and complain like that. That I quickly move from faith in God to doubting God and asking him to do what I want. And Exodus could have just taught us that grumbling is wrong. God could have said, thou shalt not grumble. It's bad. But instead what God does is he tells us a story so that we feel it, so that we sense, yeah, that's just annoying when you see this group of people see God at work and quickly grumble. And so it draws us in, and then we're meant to ask, I might not be living in that time, but how do I respond today when trials come? Do I complain and groan? Do I tell God exactly what to do, or do I trust him? Do I give thanks? Do I look like Israel, or do I respond in a different way? For a more modern example, consider the movie Stranger Than Fiction. This movie starred Will Ferrell, but don't freak out. It wasn't his normal Ricky Bobby or Buddy the Elf role. He actually played a serious character in this movie. And I always feel like this movie is greatly underrated. I don't know if anybody else feels that way. Anyways, the story, quickly summarize the plot of this story. Will Ferrell's character, Harold Crick, he's living a very ordinary life. He's kind of caught up in his routine and his schedules. There's not much significance there. But one day, as he's living life, he starts to hear a voice, but not a voice in his head. He hears a woman narrating the events of his life, saying exactly what he's doing. And so that introduces our second main character, Karen Eiffel. She's a novelist. So she's writing a story, and he's actually living the story. And we are wrestling with, well, who's is she authoring it, or is he living it, and she's responding. So kind of even see God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, another good reason to watch the film. Hey, I'm not making it up. That was there. Well, the problem is that Harold, he now hears a piece of information. The narrator says, little did he know that a particular action would lead to his impending death. Well, this novelist, she's known for finding ways to always kill off her main character. Obviously, for Harold, that's troubling. So to kind of skip forward, move to the end of the movie, what happens is the author writes out kind of a proper ending, but she doesn't type it up, which means it may or may not happen. Now, in this proper ending, the way the story probably should go, Harold dies a sudden 
death at his young age. But his death has huge impact on the world, and it leads to the greater good. And so Harold and the author, they have to wrestle with this question of, is it better for me to die at a young age, yet have great significance and help many people? Or should I continue with my life, which is good but not world-altering, and maybe have less significance? And so they have to wrestle with that question. And then we as viewers, you're asked to form your own conclusions of what would you do, of which would you think is better. It's even pushing you to see that life is precious, that we should be grateful, and that we should love people well while we have the chance. So I use those as just a couple of examples to remind us that stories are meant to do more than just inform us, that stories are meant to change us, They're not just telling us interesting things to entertain us, but they're trying to push us towards an action and a response. Well, as we read John's gospel again today in John 7, John is an author, and he's writing a story of the person and the work of Jesus. And we've seen throughout the gospel that the people around Jesus, they're being forced to answer a few basic questions. But what John is doing as an author, he's also writing to people later that would pick up the book People like you and I, and he's asking us to enter into that story and to participate. We're then forced to answer these questions on our own. Questions like, who is Jesus really? How should I respond to Jesus in light of who he is? And what does my response, whether belief or rejection, mean for my life? What we'll see today is that we must wrestle over the identity of Jesus, but then we must respond. And that the Gospels aren't merely informing us, but they're inviting us to follow Jesus. So if you have a Bible, go to John 7, verse 25. Instead of doing a scripture reading today, I'll kind of be reading it as we go. Kind of set this up, give a little bit of context. So in John 7, um, last week we saw this, but the Feast of Booths is taking place. Now in this feast, Jerusalem is packed with everyone who came to celebrate this festival about God's provision. So it's a big city, it's packed, lots of people. Maybe in your mind, think of New Year's Eve in New York City. Or think of Boston after they win another major championship and everyone gathers. Both of those places are similar. Well, in this passage, Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's a city that's full, and their mind is set on religion. They're thinking about what God has done in the past, but they're also thinking about what God might do in the future. Second piece of context, just to understand the story, is that John 7 has also been showing us this growing hostility, people are against Jesus, while at the same time there's a growing belief that more and more people are following Jesus, and yet the religious leaders against him are becoming more and more hostile against him. So as we look at 725 to 36, we'll notice there are two short stories And they almost parallel each other. That there's a setup, there's a confrontation, and then there's a resolution. So we'll start with verses 25 and 26 and see how Jesus talks about his origins and then how the people respond. And follow along with me, verses 25 to 26. It says, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? We'll stop there. 
So here's what's going on with this group. It's a little bit of information, so I'll quickly explain it. So the people know the religious leaders are against Jesus. There's no Facebook, there's no Twitter, but word gets around, and they know the religious leaders do not like Jesus. They're probably spreading these rumors we've seen that Jesus is a lawbreaker and he's a blasphemer. And so they know they want to arrest him and kill him. And so that's why this scene is even more shocking. It's a big public event. Jesus is standing up in front of everyone, and he's teaching. He's continuing to do miracles. He's proclaiming who he is, and yet those leaders aren't doing a thing. And so the people start to wonder, well, have they changed their mind? Is there new evidence? Are they now following Jesus? Do they believe he's the Messiah? Because if they did not believe that, surely they would arrest him. It would be sort of like if someone famous in our day was known for committing a crime or supposedly committing a crime, and they just walked around in public and there was no consequence. Or maybe think of this, obviously, hypothetical situation. So let's say Matt Damon, probably my favorite actor, a lot better than Will Ferrell. Let's say he's known to have committed tax evasion, or people have said he committed tax evasion. And then he shows up to a huge event like the Oscars. And so he's in front of all the people, the cameras are on, and yet Matt Damon's walking around, and nothing happens to him. Well, we might wonder, well, did they change their mind? Is there new evidence? If they had evidence to convict him, if this was a slam-dunk case, surely they would arrest him here on the spot. And yet they don't, so maybe something has changed. Well, that's what these people are thinking. If they could arrest Jesus, if they believe he had broken the law, then they would do something. They haven't, so maybe they're now following Jesus. You actually see this in verse 27, or in verse 26, they ask, maybe the authorities really know that this is the Christ. So again, going back to this situation, you have these people, think of this, they've seen Jesus do big miracles. They hear his word, that he's claiming to be the son of God. And then now they think the religious leaders are following Jesus. And so it makes sense that many start to follow him. But notice in verse 27 that an objection comes up. They're starting to lean towards belief. Some of them might be believing, but then an objection comes up and they rethink their view of Jesus. Verse 27 says, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Doesn't make a lot of sense to us probably in our day and age, but what was going on at the time is there were some rabbinical Jews teaching that the Messiah would not be known until he actually redeemed Israel. So they were saying that you would not know who the Messiah was or where he came from until he kind of did his thing. But they all know where Jesus is from. Everybody knows Jesus is from Bethlehem and from Nazareth. And so they conclude, well, he can't be the Messiah. And so we see them kind of going back and forth. It sure looks like he's the Messiah. Look at these works he's done. He's claiming to be God. And yet we know where he's from, and so he can't be the Messiah. Well, I should state here that the Bible doesn't say anything like that. There's no um, statement about you will not know where the Messiah is from. It's kind of like how we slip things into the Bible sometimes, like cleanliness is next to godliness, or God helps those who help themselves. Some people think those are in the Bible, and they're not. And that's what's going on here for these Jews. Micah 5.2 actually says that the Messiah will come, and it names the city of Bethlehem, which is why, as well, people tell Herod when Jesus is born where they can find him. So they have this objection, but it's really not a valid belief. And so all this is going on. The people are wrestling. They're going back and forth. And then Jesus, 
either he hears it or he's Jesus and he knows what they're talking about, he decides to speak into that situation and talk about where he came from. So following with, with me in verses 28 to 29. It says, So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So here Jesus is saying to them, you think you know me, but you don't really know me. You know some of the facts about my life, but you're missing the bigger truth of who I really am. Jesus is saying here, he's referring to his heavenly origins. He's saying, you know my earthly origins, that I come from Bethlehem. But you don't know that I actually come originally from God's side in heaven. One thing John's gospel is known for is its use of irony. And here we see that irony. That the people are overlooking Jesus, that they're doubting Jesus because they think about his humble beginnings. That we can't know who the Messiah is if he comes from Bethlehem. And yet, Jesus' true home, his true origins, is the glories of heaven. They think Jesus is some man trying to make a name for himself as he steps from lowly Nazareth to big city Jerusalem. But they miss that Jesus has actually stepped down from the glories of heaven to this lowly, sin-cursed earth of mere mortals. If they really knew what was going on, that Jesus came from a past way beyond Bethlehem, and John 1, 1 tells us that he was in the beginning with God because he was with God and was God. If the people knew that, if they knew who Jesus really was, who sent him, and where he was from, they would fall on their knees and worship. So John is setting up this irony that thinking they know him, but only having a surface-level knowledge of him, keeps them from truly trusting Well, after Jesus reveals who he is, we see the third part of our story. We see how the people respond. So there's the initial kind of conflict of what do we believe? We're not sure. Jesus speaks into the information. He responds and reveals who he is. And then now we see how do people respond to the revelation of Jesus? We can follow along. This is verses 30 and 31. So, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more miracles than this man has done? So verse 31, it tells us at this point that many people do believe Jesus. That Jesus had just said, I come from God. I'm sent by God. And they believe in him and they trust him. They ask, could the Messiah do more miracles, more signs than this man has done? And so what we see them doing is they're considering the words of Jesus, his claim to be God. They're considering the works of Jesus, his miracles. They're thinking about how his love, his righteousness, his compassion, it must match up with who God is. And so they trust in him. They respond in faith. But we see in verse 30 that other people respond very different. That some people hear hear them disputing and they think he should be arrested. It's probably a few of the leaders here, and as they're going back and forth, they decide, well, now we should take action. Too many people are starting to follow Jesus. But what we should notice is the word of God does not hit everyone the same. That Jesus reveals who he is, and some people believe, 
and some people reject him. And we'll talk more about that later, but what we're meant to do, again, as readers, is to think, how would I respond? Which group would I join? Do I believe what Jesus is saying about coming from God, from heaven? Or do I think that's nonsense? Would I reject him? As readers, you have to respond as you wrestle with who Jesus is. Well, before we move on to the second story in verse 32, I want us to look again at verse 30. Verse 30 tells us something really significant. It says, They could not arrest Jesus because his time had not yet come. And we see that same phrase five other places in John's gospel. Now, later on when the time is right, Jesus is arrested, and he goes to the cross, and he dies to pay for our sins. But that is not the time now. Frederick Bruner writes, Jesus' opponents cannot arrest him until his hour comes. Some kind of divine timetable seems to be in play, and Jesus' sense of a sovereign plan gives him a certain poise. I think the way we can apply even this verse is that God's sovereignty, it can give us the same poise and the same peace that Jesus had in this passage. That just as Jesus could not be arrested before his time, we trust that nothing comes into our life without first passing through the loving hands of our Father. That God is never caught off guard. God is never taking days off. He never steps off the throne. God is never surprised or overwhelmed by what's happening in our life. He's not running running around in heaven trying to fix what's going on. But the Bible tells us that God is reigning, that God's purposes are coming to fruition according to his wisdom, that even when things feel out of control, even when things are hard, even when we don't like the plan that God has for us, the Bible tells us that it is good, that it is wise, and that God has good and loving purposes for us. Consider a few of these verses where the Bible talks about God's sovereignty and why that's good news for us. Psalm 121.4 says, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. It's saying that God is not unaware of what's going on in your life, that God is not somewhere taking a nap, distracted, but that he knows, he sees, and he cares. Or Proverbs 19.21, it says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Or Isaiah 14.24, The Lord of hosts has sworn, As I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. Ephesians 1.11 says it this way, That God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Those verses are telling us that God has a purpose in everything, and that purpose will come to pass. But then consider this verse from Jeremiah. This verse is meant to encourage us. It says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And so not only will God's plans happen, but these plans are wise, they're loving, and they're good. And so the Bible gives us this foundation that's meant to provide stability and comfort in our life, especially during confusion and trials and hardship. Again, it's telling us even though this is hard and you might not understand that God is in control, that you can trust him, that his purposes are good, and this will in the long run work out 
for your good. Some of you know the story of Joni Erickson Tata. She had a diving accident at age 17 and became a quadriplegic. Immediately, she wrestled with doubt, depression, and had suicidal thoughts. But she eventually saw God's hand even in this hard thing, and she trusted in him. She saw that the very thing that she wanted the least is what God has used the most in her life. And so she's written several books about God's sovereignty. And I mention that because this next quote then, it's not from the life of someone who has had no pain, who's had an easy, comfortable life, but she says this because she's walked through hardship. She writes, Nothing is a surprise to God. Nothing is a setback to his plans. Nothing can thwart his purposes, and nothing is beyond his control. His sovereignty is absolute. Everything that happens is uniquely ordained by God. Sovereignty is a weighty thing to ascribe to the nature and character of God. Yet if he were not sovereign, he would not be God. The Bible is clear that God is in control of everything that happens. And again, I think that should give us comfort and hope. That just as Jesus could not be arrested before his time had come, that our lives are in the hands of God and nothing can happen to us apart from his plans and his purposes. That my work or my unemployment are in his hands. That my finances, my health, my family, my relationships, my singleness or marriage or parenting, those are in the hands of God. That the thing that wakes me up at night or the thing I'm thinking about during the day, that that is in the hands of God. That me, my life is in the hands of God. And if we trust that God is good, he is all-knowing, he is righteous and loving and holy, then there is no better place for us to be than in the hands of God. And so today, we can trust him. Today, we should think about, what is that thing in my life that I feel overwhelmed by? What is the thing in my life that feels like it's hard to give over to God, to trust him with? Even if it's a hard thing, it's not an easy thing. We're reminded today that we can trust in God because he is in control so we don't have to be. That God will run our life, that God will be God so that we don't have to. This passage is meant to remind us that the reason we can rest is because God is reigning. Well, as we move to the second half of our text in verses 32 to 6, we see another story And this story largely mirrors the first story. It's a story focused on how the crowd is divided. And again, we see this three-part structure. It begins with the Pharisees seeking to arrest Jesus. Then Jesus speaks into the situation about who he is. And then we see the response of the people. So follow along in verses 32 to 34. It says, The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. So as the religious leaders, they hear more of the crowd saying, well, maybe he is the Messiah. Look at all the works he's done. Look, the religious leaders are even following him. Now the religious leaders take action And they try to arrest Jesus. They feel like their power, their followers are being threatened. They see people going to Jesus, and they don't want that. They want the people following them. So they send officers to arrest them. But you can see in verses 45 to 46, again, it is not his time. 
in 45 and 46, it says the officers go to arrest Jesus, but they come back to the Pharisees saying, no man teaches like this man. So they don't arrest him because they're also amazed by who Jesus is. And it's a reminder that nothing can happen to Jesus before his hour had come. So just as the first story, Jesus knows what's going on. He knows what the people are talking about. And so he speaks into that situation. Even though in verse 28 and 29, he talks about where he's from, his origin. Here in 33 and 34, he talks about where he's going or his destination. I'll come back to that in a minute. But let's first notice how the Jews respond to what Jesus will say. This is verses 35 and 36. It says, so the Jews start to say to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? So the people are confused by Jesus' words. They think only in terms of an immediate earthly meaning. They can't conceive of how Jesus could go somewhere that they couldn't simply follow him. And so again, they be, begin to wrestle. What is Jesus meaning? Is Jesus going to start going to Gentiles? Is Jesus going some other place we cannot go? They don't know. But we see people start to respond. Some of them are confused. Some of them don't believe. And some of them follow Jesus. That some people trust his word, trust his work, and they respond to this by faith. But it does raise the question of what did Jesus mean? I mean, that is a little confusing. What was Jesus referring to when he said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Earlier, Jesus had said, seek me, and you will find me. So what is Jesus talking about when he says, you'll seek me, but you can't find me? I want to highlight two things from these verses I think Jesus is talking about. The verse is that Jesus is saying that his time on earth is short. Jesus knows that while this is not his hour, his hour is only a few months away. I think he's here referring clearly to his death and resurrection and ascension. Earlier he said, I came from heaven, that's the place I'm from, and now he says, that's the place I'm going, that I'll return. So my origin is heaven and my destiny is heaven. And he's referring to the cross, his death, the resurrection, and his ascension. And this is where Jesus has been leading us all along this ministry. He's been leading us to the time where he will come and die for sinners. Not only that, but that's where John's gospel from John 1 has been taking us. D.A. Carson says, John's work is a gospel, meaning it's an account of good news. But all the movement of the plot is toward the cross and the resurrection. So this story Events have been taking place. Events are taking place now. But all the events of the story are leading us to the cross and the resurrection and ultimately to what will we do with that. So when Jesus is arrested, we know that Jesus is referring to his death. So when Jesus is arrested, when he dies, it's not as if he is shocked or caught off guard. That it's the very reason that Jesus came. That you and I are condemned because of our sin that our sin and wrongdoing before a holy God, it puts us in a pit of shame and guilt and puts judgment over us. But John has also told us that the Father, out of love, sends Jesus, that's where he's from, sends Jesus so that he can die in our place, that Jesus can give up his life so that we can find life. This passage is telling us that Jesus, 
He pays for our disobedience by obeying God's will even to the cross. And so the lowest low of Christ's life, it becomes the very pinnacle of history and our lives. That the resurrection and ascension of Jesus prove the cross has done its work, that Jesus is vindicated, and that redemption is paid for. So that's the first thing Jesus is saying. My time is short, it's not long, and I'll go to the cross, and then I'll be raised up, and I'll return to the Father. But the second thing he's saying is not only is my time short, but your time is short. As we've been seeing in our passage, that there is time to wrestle over who Jesus is. That people are considering the works of Jesus, the word of Jesus, and they wrestle. Should I believe? Do I believe? Or am I not yet at a point of faith? And so there's room to wrestle. But here Jesus calls people to move from wrestling to response. That Jesus is saying you cannot remain undecided forever. That your time is short and now is the time to follow me. Frederick Bruner writes this. He says that Jesus seems to mean, first of all, that this is your main chance that you're never going to have another moment like this. He's saying, make a choice for me now, or I have to tell you, you may not get this opportunity again. It's now or never. To put this another way, Jesus seems to be suggesting that the ultimacy or the finality of the present moment, it is a moment of destiny after which a great wall goes up and the matter is almost over. An existential decision is required now as it never has been before and as it may never be offered again. So these are the two implications Jesus is talking about. That his death is coming and his time is short, but also that our time is short and that we must respond now. And those two things actually go together. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news. The fact that God sent Jesus to die in our place for our sins, that he was that he raised up, that he has ascended to heaven, and he could stand in our place, that is good news. But we must respond. We must receive that by faith. We must believe in it. We must choose to become followers of Jesus. Jesus is calling on this crowd, but he's also calling on the readers of this story to lay down our lives, to follow him, and to become his disciples. And he's telling us there's urgency to not wait another day, to not wait for time to be convenient, to not put this decision off, but to turn and follow Jesus now. Because life is short, we're not promised tomorrow, and so respond while the words of Jesus are ringing in our ears. It's what Jesus is saying to this crowd, and again, as readers of this story, he's saying it to us. And so it raises these issues of how will we respond? That Jesus has revealed something about who he is, And what will we do with it? Do we believe him or will we reject him? Let me give three applications as we move towards closing this. The first is about evangelism. That one application we see even from those last few words of Jesus is that our time is short and so there should be urgency to evangelism. That people need Jesus and therefore people need to hear about Jesus. That it requires believing in the person and work of Christ, which means they have to hear about him from other believers. And I know our tendency is to kind of put this off or it just gets squeezed out of our life. And so we need this reminder of how urgent it is and that this is the mission that we're called to. And that we're not meant to change anyone's mind, that we don't convince someone of whether Jesus is true or wrong, 
but we present the truth like Jesus did, and then we trust and we know that some will receive him and some will reject him and walk away. Let me give you just two upcoming ways you can actually partner with the church when it comes to evangelism. One is Easter. As Joel mentioned, this Sunday, or this Friday, we have Good Friday, and Sunday, we have Easter. And on your chair, there are Easter invite cards, and there are a bunch more at the Next Steps table. And most people, statistics say, if a real person invites someone to church on Easter, they will say yes. So this is an easy, low-hanging opportunity to invite someone you know to Easter, where they will hear about who Jesus is. And the second is the Backyard Bible Clubs. That if you want to know, well, how do I reach out to people in my community? How can I build relationships? How can I make sure kids hear the gospel? This is, again, another easy opportunity that the church is already doing. The Backyard Bible Clubs will be in June. And whether you want to lead a club, whether you want to partner with a club, whether you're just interested in what's going on, you can find out more after the service. Heidi will be at the table in the back um, sharing. But those are two easy ways to respond, to see the need for evangelism, to feel the urgency and to jump on board with what God is doing. Well, the second is to leverage this week, to leverage what the church has called Holy Week or Passion Week. That just as the people in John 7, they're thinking about God's work, God's provision, they're celebrating his work because of the Feast of Booths. Well, just as Good Friday this week and Easter is on our mind, we can use this week to read scripture, to respond to who Jesus is, and to reflect on who Jesus is. That as we rehearse the gospel, as this week especially, we meditate on the cross and how it's the very thing that brings mercy and grace into our life. Or we meditate on the resurrection and how through the risen Jesus, we also have power and new life. That those are the things we can really lean into and consider this week. Again, one thing you can do with the church is we've been providing a Lent reading guide. So whether you've done that or not, a new plan starts this week. Today is Palm Sunday, and so from today until next Sunday, there's a passage each day from Luke's gospel, and that passage focuses on the life of Jesus in his final week. So use that as one way to get into Scripture, to read about Jesus, to reflect on the cross and resurrection, and to respond to who he is. Well, finally, I want us to remember that this is a story inviting us to respond, and not just this morning. But anytime we open God's word, we encounter who God is, and we're to move from passive readers to active participants. That we're confronted with revelation of who Jesus is, and then we have to choose to respond. Do we believe him? Will we trust in him? Will we respond to what God has said is true in my life? Will I let Jesus be Lord and follow him, or will I push him to the side in unbelief? Every time we open God's word, we're being presented these options, and we're being invited into the story, and we're being asked to respond. That either Jesus is who he claimed to be, Jesus is the God who became a man, who lived a perfect life, who died in our place as sinners, who is now risen and ascended to God's right head and reigns from heaven. Either that is true, and that changes everything, or that's nonsense, and we reject it. But we can't just say that's interesting news. We can't just say, yeah, I believe with that, but I won't respond to it. The call today is to respond, to either follow Jesus fully or to say, no, I don't believe that and walk away from it. But the Bible isn't just giving us information. The Bible is a story, and this story is inviting us to respond. 
to follow Jesus and to find life in Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, we know that we are like the people in the New Testament who so quickly turned from you that just from Palm Sunday to Good Friday, people went from joyfully welcoming you to wanting to kill you. And we recognize that that tendency in our heart. So God, we pray even this week that we would spend time reflecting on who Christ is, that we would see how Jesus being the God-man who came for us, who died for us, who rose for us, and who ascended for us changes our very lives. But I pray this week that every day and the entire week that we would set our minds and hearts on Jesus and we would be changed by that. Pray this in his name. Amen.